may be seated. If uh, junior church kids would like to go at this time, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I think it's always good to come back to the fundamentals periodically. I say that often because I think we forget the fundamentals. Uh, by the way, we're moving into Nehemiah, so if you're interested, we're going to be doing, uh, I don't know, 12, 15, 18 week study on the book of Nehemiah, so you may want to start reading ahead. A couple weeks from now, we'll be starting that. I know I told you that a couple weeks ago, but actually it'll be another couple weeks. Um, one of the most unnerving situations of my entire life I've shared with you before, but I want to share it again. It happened a number of years ago. Uh, it was my wife's idea, by the way. <laughs> it was October. Hey, John, how would you like to do a walk in the woods? Yeah, honey, let's do it. And so, went up to Phillips Creek. It was a warm October day, probably 60s. Leaves were falling, you know, perfect scenario. Had five kids, one of which was a, a, a newborn infant, probably one year old, which had been Caden. And I remember, you know, we got out of the van. That's when we had that old brown conversion van. And uh, we started walking. Now, unfortunately, it didn't occur to me, if I got the map, I didn't pay real close to attention to it. I can't remember if I got one of the maps or not, but regardless, I didn't pay real close attention to it. And within about 30, 35 minutes into the walk, it wasn't that long, we started realizing we weren't sure, at least I wasn't sure where I was. Now, Phillips Creek, that area is quite big. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. So this is in the afternoon, and now it's 4 o'clock, and you know in October it's starting to get, you know, you can start seeing the sun start go down. And so I remember looking off in the distance thinking I saw a set of poles, uh, telephone poles. And so I'm thinking, oh, this is great, you know, because I'm lost, but at least if I find telephone poles, I can lead it, and they'll go somewhere, you know. So trying to be spiritual with my kids and teaching them a lesson, it went something like this. Kids, let's pray and ask for direction, you know, because I thought I had saw the poles. Amen. Went to where I thought I saw the poles, and they weren't there. So then I'm like, kids, we need to pray. <laughs> we were lost. We were lost, lost in the woods, and it was October, so the uh, forecast was it was going to get down to the mid-30s by that night, so it was going to drop a lot, and we didn't have, I mean, I, I remember I had decent shoes, I had like my church shoes on, we, we had a couple light uh, parkas beyond that, it was going to be a cold night, and I remember I was so, un, it was so unnerving to me, you know. To think about, in fact, I still, you know, every time I go past Phillips Creek, it's almost like I want to go somewhere else, you know, no, no, please, no, I have not been back there, I mean, I have not turned into that, I just won't, you know, it turned out we end up uh, finding our way, I mean, what I wouldn't have, you know, would have given for a a compass or or some matches, you know, Uh, because I just thought if nothing else, start a firewall. You know, I'm not survivor man, so I'm not going to do this thing, you know, and we got to get out of here, and it's getting darker, you know, it's starting to now get, and uh, we ended up somewhere, I still don't even know, and we went to the first house, it wasn't, we didn't come out where, we, we came out somewhere else, I, and like I said, I still don't know, I don't know if you know, I don't think, I don't know where we were, but found a house, I was about ready to break the window, you know, 
So then I would have been brought up on charges and you would have visited me in jail. <clears throat> well, thankfully I didn't do that. And then I said, well, there's a, this is a road, so let's keep walking down another half mile or three quarter, whatever. There was, there was a house, there was a person, they got me back and within, within a half hour of that time, everything was okay, you know. I remember we went out and celebrated at Pizza Hut, you know. <laughs> that was the best bill I ever got. We're all together safe and full. <clears throat> but it was very unnerving. It was very uh, frightening. But one of the things I realized, because when we found out that the first set of poles were not poles, we started moving. And, and sometimes you can make, uh, you can be very busy, a lot of energy expended, but not making a lot of progress. And I felt like that's how it was in that woods, you know. Uh, we have to make sure as a church and personally, so let's say it this way, personally and as a church, that the energy we're putting into the Christian life is really going in the right direction, that we're actually making progress. Um, again, we can become very busy, but not pr- much progress. And I see that in my own personal life at times, and I've seen it at the church at times. It, it seems like everyone's really busy, almost frantic. You know, we're trying to get all this stuff done. But we just want to slow down and make sure, okay, let's make sure that we're actually making progress the way that Jesus Christ wants us to make it. Because again, we looked at last week that the very familiar passage where Jesus said, I will build my church. I. I'm going to do it. In fact, he's right now in the process of building this church. I will build. That's edify. That's structure. In other words, he's the architect. I will build my church, my group of people. And by the way, the church, the word church means called out ones. We're called out ones. What do you mean? Called out of the world. They're on a path to destruction. And we've been called out, so our focus needs to be on the commander. Our focus needs to be on the master builder, Jesus Christ. And let's make sure our lives are lining up to what he wants for us. Because again, we can get real busy. By the way, we can get real busy with what the world says is important, can't we? You can get real busy saying you know, what the world says is important. But we don't want to end on the day of judgment, standing before Him and ready to receive reward and find out we could have had so much more if we had paid attention to what He wanted for our life, not what the world said had to be in our life. Now, I want to look at this from two different aspects. The first is going to be very quickly, and that's a personal aspect. If you want to go to Proverbs 14, verse 8. Proverbs 14, verse 8. This is a, a, a thought for us personally. Proverbs 14, verse 8 says, The wisdom of the prudent. That word prudent really doesn't mean wise. It just means sensible. This is like makes sense. (laughs) You know, you ever watch somebody that, uh, you know, is, you know, maybe in your family and and you might make this comment. They just just don't make sense. They're living their life. It doesn't make sense. Well, here it says, "This This is a person that makes sense. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. But the folly of fools is deceit. Now let me break down a couple words. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand. The word understand means to consider. Actually, in the Hebrew, one of the uh, ways it can be translated is to meditate. In other words, a prudent man is going to meditate on his path. Okay? Because it says understands his way, his personal way. The way there is a well-worn path. It has, it has the idea of your habits. In other words, a prudent man looks at his life and the habits of his life and actually meditates or ponders or thinks about 
the direction that his pattern of living is going in. In other words, what direction is your pattern of living going towards? It is going towards somewhere, right? See, every one of us have patterns in our life. We get up, we do certain things. We think about certain things. We worry about certain things. We hope for certain things. We live for certain things. Those are patterns. Those are habits in our life. But it says this, that the, that the, the wise, the wisdom of the prudent, you know, the sensible man, is to understand his way. He understands the direction of his patterns and the direction that they're going to take him. But notice the second part. But the folly of fools is deceit. Now the word deceit means... Well, it's, let's say it this way. It's the opposite of to understand. Okay? It's the opposite. The, the deceitful person, <clears throat> the fool, the folly, means that he's, he hasn't considered his path. He's just like getting up every day. You know, well, it's Monday. What do I, you know, let's just do it. And he's not really thinking long term and saying, okay, my steps are leading towards... And again, I would trust that you are, you are thinking through where are your steps leading you? So it refers to the fact that a fool refuses to meditate or to ponder or to think or to consider about his patterns of life. And instead, he's deceiving himself. He just, in fact, a fool would think it this way. I can keep doing the same thing, but it's going to have a different result next day. Well, they, they say that's the definition of the insane man. Keep doing the same thing, but expecting different results. But really, that's fool. That's a fool. A fool thinks, okay, I can do things the same way, but it's going to have a different result tomorrow. No, that's actually deceit. They've been deceived. In other words, I look at this guy and think of it this way. He is lost in the woods of life. <laughs> you know, I was lost in the woods of Phillips Creek. But there are a lot of people that are just lost in the woods of life. They're just stuck. They're stuck in the trench. They think if they keep going, they might make progress. But the reality is they're, they're busy, but they're not really progressing. And I trust that you have stepped back because it's a wise person, it's a prudent person that steps back and says, let me think about my life. Let me think about the patterns, the habits that I'm developing. And are they leading towards my best as far as eternity? That's, that's acceptable, by the way. It's acceptable to say this. I want to live my life to the very best of what Christ wants because that will be most beneficial to me on the day of judgment, on the day of accounting, on the day of reward. I trust that you're evaluating your life. As one man said, and I didn't put in your outline, I don't think, it says this, time, that's now, is eternity's, that's then, dressing room. Time is eternity's dressing room. We're getting ready for reward day. I trust that we're, we're, we're looking for the right clothes, as it were. So the present time will determine how you will be dressed or i.e. rewarded for eternity. That's, that's huge. We need to teach our kids. You know, every moment you live on this earth, you're preparing yourself for eternity. Now, obviously, the first and most important commitment to be made is that a person realizes their need for the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? That they put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what the baptism is all about. I have, I have committed myself to Jesus Christ. I have been baptized into him. That's spiritual baptism. That's the first. But then, beyond that, sometimes we think, well, finally, you know, we're not going to go to hell. No, no, now we have, to, we have to be walking in such a way as a wise, prudent man who is thinking about his path, the path of his life. I like how J. Oswald Sanders says it. This is, this is an extended 
quote, but it's worth reading. He says, After making a generous allowance of eight hours a day for sleep and rest. How many of you get eight hours of sleep? How many of you get four hours? How many of you get ten hours? <laughs> How many of you get twelve hours? No. But he says, After about eight hours a day of, for sleep and rest, and a few really, uh, and few really need more than that, he says, three hours a day for meals and social intercourse, Ten hours a day for work and travel on five days. There, is still, there still remains no fewer than 35 hours unaccounted for in each week. Now again, each one of us is different, I understand. But his point is this. You've got to eat. By the way, you have to sleep. Every time you lay your head on the pillow, you know what you should be reminded of? I'm finite. God made it this way. God wants me to sleep because it, it shows that he is infinite. He is all-powerful and I'm not. See, if, if I go for, if I, I remember one time because I was working uh, midnight and, I, and I, I stayed up for 36 hours straight. That was the only time I've ever done that, okay? Uh, maybe some of you have even gone beyond that. But I just remember at the 36th hour, I, it was actually, it ended at church. It was like, the way it ended was like, I, and I, you know, I, I wanted to go to church. So I, and I remember just sitting there, you know, like I, I didn't have a clue what the guy was saying, the pastor Morris. But the point was, is when we sleep, you know what? That's put into our rhythm of life. Why? Because it keeps telling us you're finite. You're not God. You need to, you need to step back. Now, I've, I've really veered here. But the point is this. This is what he ends by saying. What happens to those hours, those 35 extra hours? How are those extra two days in the sense of, you know, you already slept. So those extra two days in your week invested. The whole of man's contribution to the kingdom of God might well turn upon how those crucial hours are employed. They will determine whether his life will be commonplace or extraordinary. You, you, you take out your work and your eating and your sleeping, and you know, and, and then you have a chunk of time. For some of us, it may be ten hours, twenty hours, thirty hours, maybe even more than that. The question is, how are you using that? See, a wise person, a prudent person, is going to say, "Okay, how am I using that?" What, am, what, what is happening in my life and in what path am I going and how is it going to end up? I, I trust that you're, you're um, evaluating your life. You know, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, it says of elders. Now, this is a requirement of elders that they be of good behavior. Or the ESV says respectable. But what that word really means is that they are able to arrange their life in an orderly fashion. See, it actually means this, that if an elder is chaotic in his living, he's actually disqualified himself from being an elder. We need to be uh, orderly. Now, again, I'm not saying perfect. And look at my desk if you go into my office. You know, I still have two piles. I'm not talking about that. But your life needs to be orderly. That's a a godly characteristic, to be orderly. Because that shows self-control. That means that you've thought through and well-organized your life so that you you can accomplish objectives. Well, if it's important for elders, it's important for all of us. But how do you get there? A prudent man is going to consider his ways. He's going to understand his ways. He's going to order order his life in, in a certain way. Berg, one of the, he's one of my favorite authors, said this, Order in our lives does not make us godly. And I want to make sure we, you know, we're not talking about godliness here. Order does not make us godly. Rather, it makes us useful to God. A person whose life has, has order is constructive in his deed and words instead of destructive. 
He determines his activities by priorities, not by the pressures around him. He knows how to schedule his time and work and works towards a worthy goal. Okay, so order is very, very important. Orderliness is very important because you're able to say, you know what, this is the direction God wants me to go. And therefore, I can use my spiritual gift because I understand how that's... And it's worth doing it because, again, reward day is coming. And you're thinking through your life. So again, order. Order does not make us godly, but it does make us useful. And so, let's go to the verse. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way. Do you understand your way? Have you thought through what, what is going to happen in your life if you live another five, ten years in the same path that you're, you know, running down right now? What are you using with those 25, 30 extra hours? Do you find yourself, after you look at it through the whole day, or the whole week, and you say, man, boy, I wasted a whole lot of time. Or are you like, you know what, I need to start identifying areas that are just wasteful and are not productive for the kingdom, and I need to start, I need to start disciplining myself so that then I look forward to uh, the day of reward. So that's the first big point. And again, that's a key thought for you personally. Now what I'd like to do is, if you go over to Acts chapter 2, I want to look at the, the concept of us corporately, though. By the way, if you don't have your own personal life together, how much are you going to be able to really give to the body of Christ? Now think about that. If your own personal life is not together, how much can you really do corporately and really for others? Probably not much. Why? Because if your own personal life is not together, what are you going to have to be? I need, I need, I need, right? See, do you see how these work together? You have a life that is together personally. By the way, when I say personally, I'm not saying that every part of your life is just perfect. And obviously, we're all fellow strugglers. But the reality is that you're, you're walking with Jesus Christ, filled by His Spirit, being used by Him. Now, how profitable can you be then as a believer? Huge, right? Because you're not a getter, you're a giver. Oh, you might have to get periodically. That's part of life. That's part of how the church is made. But again, you're able to give because your life itself is, is together. Now, Acts chapter 2. Now, again, you know from history, or actually from the book of Acts, this is the day of Pentecost. Peter has preached, and at this point he gives, uh, he, he gives as it were, the invitation. Verse 37, now when they heard this, actually he didn't give the invitation. They were screaming at him, basically saying, uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, but you know, I say scream, I'm saying they were anxious. They wanted to know, what, what do I do? What do we do? And, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. By the way, be careful here. We're not talking about baptismal regeneration. That's very clearly seen, not seen in the rest of Scripture. But do you see what he's saying? Listen, if you truly repent and receive Christ, you will be baptized. In fact, let me say this. We have not pushed baptism, I think, like the New Testament pushes it. Uh, sometimes I think we say, oh, get saved, and then later on sometime get baptized. Actually, the New Testament model is when a person has truly committed their life to Jesus Christ, their next move is to get baptized. Even the Ethiopian eunuch. What, what does uh, stop me from being baptized? It goes down in the water, comes up out of the water. The only time I, I would say that you have to be careful, and again, I believe this, I can, I can prove this scripturally, is with a child. Age of accountability, age of responsibility. And the idea is, like with children, I would say wait till around 12 or 13. 
But John, you're contradicting yourself. Well, but I also understand that from a Jewish mindset, it wasn't until 12 that the person was considered adult. So you've got to be careful there. But the point is this. I think we're too lax many times on baptism. Here, as soon as, that's why Peter is putting those together. You receive Christ, be baptized. In fact, look at verse 40. And when with, uh, with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then they, those who gladly received his word, what did they do? Were baptized. See, they got it. They understood what he was saying. If you receive Jesus Christ, then confess him in public wa- in, in, the, in, in the waters of baptism. So, we want to look at this New Testament church. This is, this is where the church was born. And I think in the next few verses, you see four different characteristics of a true New Testament church. In other words, these four characteristics are the fundamentals of a church. Or to say it this way, if you find a church that do not ha- does not have these characteristics, then they're not a New Testament church. You've got to have these four. Now, you can have more than this, but you cannot have less than this to be a New Testament church. And the first one is a teaching church. Look at verse 41. Then those who, were, uh, who, who gladly received his word were baptized, and on that day there was 3,000 souls were added to them. And they were they continued steadfastly what in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. I, I just want to take that one little part. They con- continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's a teaching church. Uh, you can't have a New Testament church without having a teaching church. Now you say why? Well, let me back up. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now think about that word baptized. It says over in Matthew, I think it's 3, that when the disciples, some of the disciples came to John the Baptist, Baptist, they were baptized. Now, these were people, therefore, okay, these were people on the day of Pentecost, some of them would have been John the Baptist's disciples. They would have already gone into the water of baptism, which showed repentance. Now Peter says, no, no, that's right. That was good that you showed repentance through baptism. But now as you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to be baptized again. Now, do you see the... Sometimes people come and say, well, well, like Nancy said, well, I was baptized as a child, or I was sprinkled at this church when I was 12, or I was poured on when I was four, uh, 40, whatever. Do I really need to be baptized again? Actually, the New Testament believers were. Because those guys, those women... They would have, they would have uh, gone through, many of them would have gone through John the Baptist's baptism, which was a call to repentance, and yet now they're called upon to do it again. Well, that was just a sidelight. Let's think about teaching. Teaching continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Teaching is mentioned, I want you to see this first in this passage. After being baptized, what's the next thing? Teaching continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Why is teaching mentioned first? It is the word that established the church by bringing people to faith. That's why teaching is so critical. James says this, of the word of God, which is able to save your souls. What saves my soul? It's me being connected to what the word of God says to Jesus Christ. It's actually living. It's living. And therefore, when the word of God penetrates my heart, your heart, it's living. It actually transforms us. It actually brings us to life. So we need the Word of God. It is the Word of God, number two, that teaches us how to worship. 
Or as Howard Hendricks used to say, you cannot worship a God that you do not know. This book tells us how to worship. We're going to see that in a moment. It's very important because much of, much of worship that is done even in churches may not be true worship. It is the word that defines the direction that we must go. Like Proverbs says, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. In other words, the word of God gives us direction. Direction for my life. Direction on how to get out of sin. Direction on how to stay right with God in the sense of um, fellowship. It tells me how to help other people. See, it's all about the Word of God. And then finally, it is the Word of God that sets the priorities. What do you mean? Well, the priority of prayer, the priority of evangelism, the priority of being selfless. The priority of saying, you know, it's not all about you, John, it's about them. It's about me primarily, right? Don't you get hit with the Word of God? Don't you love when the Word of God does that? You know what I really love about the Word of God is when I read it, like in the morning I really like reading it, and an old passage has new truth. It's not really new, but it hits me in a new way. I mean, that's, that happens to me all the time. Oh, yeah, I guess I never thought of it that way. What is, what is God doing? He's ironing, sharpening iron, except it's not a person. It's the Word of God that is hitting my heart, hitting your heart. We desperately need the Word of God because it keeps changing us. That's why it says they were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' doctrine. Verse 46, they continually daily with one accord in the temple. This is one thing you can say about the New Testament Christians in Acts 2. They were hungry. Any of you hungry? Any of you like uh, Chinese? I really like the Chinese, yeah. Always makes me sick afterwards, but I do like the Chinese when I meet him. <laughs> Always seems like my heart races and the salt, whatever. All right, I only say that to say this. We should be like that for the Word of God. We should look forward to it. Like if I started describing some of the food at a Chinese you know, buffet, you'd say, hmm, yeah, don't do that. It's, it's quarter to a twelve. No, no, no. But that's how it should be the Word of God. We, we should look forward to getting into it, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's ABF, neighborhood home group, personal devotions. The idea is we need it. Because with truth comes transformation. By the way, what exactly is the apostles' doctrine? I believe this. The apostles, basically, this was in a nutshell, spoke about the life and work of Jesus Christ. You can see it in Luke 24 when Jesus said this to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus Christ, expounded to them in all the scriptures the things, now get this, concerning Himself. So when we go to the Word of God, it's not just to get some facts and who is the Antichrist and all that. That's got a part. But the point is, is we go to see Jesus Christ. We want to be like Him. We want to worship Him. We want to be His faithful followers. Because why? I will build my church. And if you're part of His church, you want to please Him. So that's what the Apostles' doctrine, it's all got to do with Jesus Christ. By the way, how? What was their attitude? What was their attitude in going to the Scriptures? And I think you can see this in in just breaking these words down. First of all, it was a submissive attitude because it says the Apostles' doctrine. See, the Apostles were the authority at the moment. 
And the people were submitting to the apostles' doctrine. By the way, it wasn't their own personal uh, vault of truth. It was what was given to them by Jesus Christ. But, but as uh, spokesmen and ambassadors for Jesus Christ, they were presenting truth. And the, uh, the crowd that were saved, the three, four, five thousand, however point in the act, they were submissive. They were listening. They realized that the word had authority because it was Jesus Christ who was behind the apostles. Remember when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth? Now, I want you to go. Well, he wasn't, he was saying, listen, I have the authority, but you're going on behalf of me. Are you a submissive person? Are you submissive to the word of God? When, when you hear the word of God proclaimed, whether from the pulpit or teaching or six o'clock in the morning when you're having your own personal devotions. By the way, you are getting into the word of God on a regular basis, right? You are, right? You are a hungry person, aren't you, for the word of God? I trust you are, because if you're not hungry for the word of God, well, what happens if you stop eating? You start shriveling. That happens spiritually, right? If I'm not into the word of God, you know what I start finding? I can't deal with pressure. I start getting irritated with people. I start wanting to give... I'm saying this is what happens to me. When I don't get in the Word of God, I start wanting to give up. I start sensing a hopelessness and a despair. And I have a tendency to go to other people for advice. I find myself wanting to listen to talk radio more. Well, give me some hope out there. Give me something. I find when I start getting in the Word of God... That's not that I don't listen to Rush, but the point is, is that, you know, I don't need it. Eh, five minutes and that's enough. And I got the, you know, that's enough. I know I say Rush, and you know, but you, hey, listen, where are you getting your hope, right? Where are we getting our hope? Is, are we driven? And then, you know, I get up in the morning sometimes, oh, I'm so busy. I just, you know, I've got so many things on my mind. John, what's most important here? Are you going to try to live this life on your own today? Are you going to spend some time with me? Because you don't spend time with me. You're the, you know what? The rest of your day is going to be like haggard. Now let's let's back up here, and and then and then you know you, you spend the time. It's like ah, why would I have not? But there's been times I haven't. So it's a submissive. By the way, submissive. It's not my authority. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 18. I can see I'm not going to go very far today. This will have to be a two-parter. My wife said, are you really going to get through all that? Probably not. I'll just spend a couple more minutes. We'll be done. Matthew 18. Remember, this is the uh, discipline chapter. You know, if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Okay, you're going to... In other words, you're reaching out to a brother, what? To try to rescue him, what? From himself, his own sin. But what if he says this? Hey, listen, stop getting into my life. It's none of your business. Stop being a holy roller. Well, you bring someone else, verse 16. But if, but if he will not hear, take with, take with you one or two more. What? Witnesses. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Now, if he doesn't listen to that, still refuses, well then... You know, in our, you can go like this. There's other portions of Scripture that would say, well, you take another group, probably the elders, and then tell it to the church. What? Tell the church that the profession they made must not be real because they're unwilling to be obedient to Jesus Christ. This is very, very important. 
See, a submissive attitude is that I want to obey Jesus Christ and what His Word says. So you bring in witnesses to keep saying this. Listen, what the first person said and the second two people said and the elders have said, now you tell it to the church to say this, what we're saying is from the Word of God. Because again, we want to be submissive to what the Word of God says. Now, the authority that we do this with is not our own authority. It's been given to us. If you look on, uh, wait a second, where's my page? Um, look at verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Actually, it's in the uh, perfect, future perfect. So the idea is this. This is how it really is read. This is how it reads, all right, in the Greek. Literal. I say to you, whatever that you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. So really, we are nothing more than ambassadors, spokespeople for God. Um, you take a person and they tell you, well, I'm living in fornication, but you can't tell me what to do. And we go and we say, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and look at Ephesians, and look at you know uh, Galatians, and fornication is against God, and adultery is against God. You can't tell me what to do. No, what you're doing is sinful and God is not pleased and you are under God's chastisement if not God's condemnation if you're not a true believer. You can't tell me what to do. Well, no, actually I can because all authority has been given to Jesus Christ and as one of his disciples, not as one of his pastors, we all have this, but as one of his disciples, he tells us that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. See, it's not that God, and in, it's not this, it's not that heaven is doing our bidding, we're doing his, right? So because it's already been bound, we're just now telling the person, listen, I, I want you to know how God feels about this. I want you to know that, I want you to understand God's judgment on this, God's determination on this. And then look at this verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, what do you mean? Well, that this is a true interpretation of Scripture. Fornication is wrong. What you're doing is sinful and God is chastising you. Okay, we've agreed because we find it in Scripture. Concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. By the way, that is not a prayer. You know, we always say, you know, oh, we can get together for prayer, and if two or three are gathered, then he hears us. No, actually, I get together with God in the morning, and he hears me. This is, this is a passage on church discipline, that if I go to a person, and I say, you know, what you're doing is sin. God says, you know what, you better make sure you have another witness. Let's make sure that you're not just seeing this out of your eyes, but it's actually biblically truth, truthful, and you go... And you confront, and you say, why are you telling us about church discipline? One, it's biblical. But two, it shows if we have a submissive spirit. And when the person receives the word, it will determine whether they have a submissive spirit. Just like these New Testament believers says, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Okay. Now, first of all, submissive spirit. Number two, and we're almost done. A teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. They continued steadfastly. 
In other words, they continued. There was a willingness to grow. That's what that word continued means. They were willing to grow. They were willing to change. They were willing to be redirected, i.e., they were willing to be obedient. That's, that's what that word continued steadfastly indicates. They adhered themselves. They were attentive. That's why, like James says, to be not only a hearer, but a doer. Do you receive the word? Sometimes we hear the word of God and we just, you know, and we dis it by rationalizing. Well, it doesn't really apply in this situation. I cannot tell you how many times in counseling or church discipline that has been said. Well, I know what it says, or at least you think it says, but it doesn't apply in my situation. Really? Really? No, no. These young believers continued. They had a teachable spirit. I liked what Howard Hendricks said. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. No, I want you to get this. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. It is what? Fill in the blank. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. Because you can have knowledge and not have this other part. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. It is obedience. It is obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? See, the opposite of ignorance is not knowledge. Sometimes, as Americans, Greek thinkers, we call it. See, a Greek would say this, if I know it, then it's me. A Jew would say, no, you can know it and not do it. So the opposite of ignorance is not knowledge, it's obedience. In our lives, it's the same way. It's not just me knowing something. There's times in my life I've struggled with certain sins. What the Lord has done is banged on my heart and said, wait a second, it's not about you knowing the path of righteousness. It's about you walking the path of righteousness. I trust you're walking the path of righteousness. And then finally, a steadfast spirit. Because they continued what? Steadfastly. In fact, if you're in the book of Acts, just go over a few chapters to chapter 8. And you say, well, how steadfast were they? Well, in chapter 2, they were together, but by chapter 8, they're being persecuted. In other words, hard times came. Very hard times. And we know some of that. Christians were being thrown to the gladiators, thrown in the arena. Wild beasts were tearing them apart. They would, they would impale them on stakes. They would crucify them. You know, they would wrap them in skins <clears throat> and let the beasts tear them apart. I mean, very, very. But notice, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. When it was easy, they were walking with Jesus. When it became hard, they still walked with Jesus. Now Saul was consenting to his death, Thomas Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem. Great, underline the word great. It meant a lot of trial, a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering. But notice what happened. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. So they went, they scattered, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his behalf. Well, that's, that's, that's no more. But the point is, they went, and it, oh, I, I lost the passage. Oh, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. <laughs> okay, it's one thing to be, to suffer for Jesus, and then just go like this. Well, I'm not going to say that again. You know, I'm not going to talk about him. Yeah, I'll be a secret service Christian. That's not what the New Testament... See, they were not only 
<clears throat> submissive and teachable, they were steadfast. They were steadfast. They went and they preached Christ to them. And then it goes on. Well, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. I mean, it's just, so again, we just got to remember that it's not just about knowing the, the truth, but about sharing the truth. It's about living the truth. It's about being steadfast. It's not just what I profess to you today. The question is, am I going to end my life well? I just had a sad story of a person who was in our church at one time who literally got on, I think it was Facebook, and said, I'm no longer a Christian. That's so sad to me. By the way, I actually, in one sense, I'm thankful. At least it identifies who the person is. Now they know their, their spiritual state. People can reach out. But the reality is sometimes that happens. A person might profess, but then realize, no, I'm not really a true believer. Now, these, these, these believers here, when they heard the word, they were teachable, they were submissive, but they were obedient. They were steadfast. It wasn't just about one day. It was about their lifetime. I will walk with Jesus Christ. Oh, I will fall. That was purposeful, by the way. I would have fall, fell a little bit more graceful than that. Right? Oh, we fall. How many of you fell? How many of you fell this last week? How many of you had to, out of a heart of just anguish, Lord, I did it again? But you know what a true believer says? But Lord, I want to follow you because you are my Lord. And Lord, I want to get serious about this. I don't want this following me the rest of my days. It doesn't have to. I can have victory. I can not only be a fellow struggler, I can be an overcomer. I can be overcomer because you're in my life. Your spirit is in my life, Lord. But I need to be serious about this. So how are you approaching the word of God? Are you, are you submissive to it? When you hear the truth, is it like, Lord, okay, I need to change. And therefore, you're submissive, you're obedient, but Lord, and I want to see this happen long term. It's not going to be a glitch on the screen. It's not going to be, you know, into the frying pan. It's going to be long term. Is, is that how you approach the word of God? I trust you do. Because again, that is what Jesus Christ wants for his followers. Because I will build my church. He's building it in you. Again, it's not because John said it. Anything that I say, if you cannot tell me that it's true, in other words, if you can go in there and say, what you just told me today is wrong, then disregard, because I don't have the authority. I only have authority as I am presenting it to you right here. The book that you hold is the book that I hold, and that's where our authority is found. Amen? And amen that we have it. Amen that we can study it. Let's stand as we worship him. Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, again, we thank you for the New Testament Christians, this uh, first century church. We thank you for their submissive attitude towards the word of God, their openness, their wanting to receive teaching, thirsty and hungry for it. And Father, I pray that that would be in our own lives, that each one of us would be very, very thirsty for the word. Lord, help us to arrange our path properly. Uh, that if we have not been getting into your word throughout this week, that we would repent of that. That we would set aside time, whether it's in the morning, afternoon, or night, that we would be getting into your word. We desperately need it. We need you to work in our hearts. We need you to change us and transform us as we study and understand your word. Father, help us to be steadfast. We seem to see some who get so excited at one moment, one day, one month, but then they lose interest and they're gone. I pray that we'd run the race well and finish well. Father, again, we need to evaluate ourselves. And I pray that we might even spend some time today doing that. 
so that we might be, again, in your word and praying and truly ministering and and fellowshipping with one another. Guide us now, we ask for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.